0: Hi, I'm Pat Simmons, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the fastest corner of podcast land. It's Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. That was another thrilling Grand Prix on Sunday, wasn't it? I like to call it the stunner from Styria. Lewis Hamilton was, of course, imperious on track, but there was a lot going on off track as well. And one of the biggest stories to emerge from race week was the confirmation that none other than Fernando Alonso will return to Formula One in 2021 with Renault. Were you surprised by the news? And how do you think Fernando's gonna get on? Well, to answer those questions and more, I've invited on a guest who knows more about Fernando than most, Formula One's Chief Technical Officer, Pat Simmons. Pat was an instrumental figure in Fernando's two world titles at Renault in 2005 and 2006, when he was the team's executive director of engineering, as well as being a part of its senior management group. And when it comes to Alonso the racing driver, few people know him better than Pat. He saw him grow from an ambitious 21-year-old test driver into a multiple race winner and a two-time world champion. He knows the brilliance of the man, but he also knows the weaker points, which he hopes Fernando will have ironed out during his two years away from Formula One. Pat also has some pretty tasty reference points with whom to compare Alonso. He's worked with Ayrton Senna, Nelson Piquet, and Michael Schumacher, among many other race winners, and he makes some fascinating comparisons between them and Fernando. So sit back and enjoy hearing from a man who's not only one of the most experienced and successful engineers in Formula One, he's someone who really knows what makes Alonso special. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Pat, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Now, Fernando Alonso. (laughs) What was your reaction when you heard the news last week that he's coming back to Formula One? To be
0: honest, I wasn't surprised. I think what has surprised me this year, though, is that the, the so-called silly season has kicked off so, so early. You know, in a, a normal year, we arrive in Hungary just before the break in August and everyone's talking about what might happen. And, you know, will we know by Monza who's going where and who's doing what? And they, all the speculation arises then. Whereas this year, uh, and of course this is a very unusual year in so many ways, it's all different. And, um, you know, the, the announcements are coming thick and fast and, and early. Once things started clicking into place, and I, I guess that it was Sebastian's announcement or the announcement about Sebastian that really started the ball rolling. Yeah, I I thought, hang on. Is there a place here for Fernando? I think a lot depended on what Sebastian was going to do. Uh, And indeed, one still wonders what he's going to do. But the fact is that everyone jumped in quickly. Daniel was there quickly. uh, Ferrari were there quickly with Carlos. and, And I think Fernando saw his chance. And... I think he's been dying to get back into Formula One. So I wouldn't say it was a huge surprise to me.
1: So for people listening who don't have his stats in front of them, he's 32 wins, 22 poles, 97 podiums, 17 years in Formula One. What kind of a driver are Renault going to get in 2021?
0: Well, because stats refer to, to the past and... 2021s in the future, so you know one needs to be careful how you look at these things. But but those stats say a lot, don't they? You know there there are not many drivers with stats like that. So the answer is they're going to get a damn good driver. There's no doubt about it. You know I I knew Fernando well, worked with him over many years. Now okay, that was a while ago, uh, and people change, and circumstances change, cars change, and the requirements that the team needs of a driver and the requirements of the car need of a driver change as well but um i think you know the, the fact is that his record speaks for itself you know it it it's outstanding and i i still believe he has an awful lot within him to enable that success to continue
1: what are his greatest
0: strengths now this is going to sound trite but his ability to drive a car fast. <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it sounds stupid, but, you know, it, it's not a given all the time. And when I say the ability to drive a car fast, I mean when it needs driving fast. And I guess that, you know, this is part of his strength. He has mental capacity. He, he knows when to drive the car fast and when to drive it fast enough. And there's a difference. An incident that stands out in my mind was in, in Canada it was either in 2005, 2006, one, you know, one of his championship years. He was talking on the radio quite a lot during a lap, during the race. And that was a lap that he set the fastest lap of the race. And this, to me, you know, just illustrated this sort of capacity that he had. He could drive fast while he was thinking of other things. And he, he was driving what he felt was fast enough. Now that happened at that time, it meant that it was the fastest lap. But there'll be other times when he can conserve things. And I think that that's quite an important factor, particularly these days, you know, with tyre management and, and things like that, I think are, are extremely
1: important. He's said in the past, hasn't he, that he's not the fastest over one lap in qualifying. Is that true? I'm surprised
0: he said that because, you know, I, I think he is very good over one lap. Again, the stats will be Tell you that I can't remember how many pole positions we we had in in those those years, but um, no, I, I think he is pretty good on, on one lap. Were there some who could challenge him? You know what I think that really means. I think that his, his ability to stand out from the crowd is perhaps more prominent in the race than it is in qualifying. You know, I said, okay, his ability to drive a car fast is an important thing. Well, you know. I think there are plenty of drivers who can do one lap in a much more competitive manner than they can do 60, 70 laps in a, in a race. And maybe that's what he means, that, you know, there were others who could challenge him over a lap. Now, that's not to say that he he's not quick over a lap, but I think there are probably others who can get closer to him. When it comes to a race, when it comes to managing a race, when it comes to knowing how to plan that race, how to use the car during that race, you know, he, he's... Schumacher-like, he's Senna-like. He, he has that ability to, to sort of really get this very holistic view of the race, you know, this sort of God's eye view to, to picture the race from beginning to end and to, to think how he's going to manage it.
1: He's all over the strategy, as well as talking to you on the radio about tyre management and things during a race?
0: Yeah, very much so. You know, I, in those days, I used to do the, the strategy at Renault. We would spend a long while talking it through because you know doing strategy is partly a mathematical exercise and but there's a little bit more to it than that there is certainly when you're doing the maths you have unknowns that you're you're putting into your simulations and things so you you try and imagine your way through those and I I used to try and build up a mental picture before the race of, you know, if this happens, then this is the sort of direction I need to go in. So that even if your tools fell over or, or, you know, if things went out of the sort of boundaries that you'd imagined, you still had this sort of, in in my mind, it was almost like a sort of 3D map of the race. And you could see your way through the hills and valleys. And, you know, depending on how steep they were, you went in a certain direction. And, And I think Fernando used to really enjoy talking that through and understanding that uh, and translating it in real time during the race. There's one
1: incident in 2010, Abu Dhabi, he's in that Ferrari, and do you remember he pitted to cover Mark Webber in that race and just left himself completely exposed to Sebastian Vettel. Given what you're saying about his ability to read a race, were you surprised that although the team called him in, he didn't see that that was the wrong thing to do?
0: I think... And correct me if I'm wrong here, but he got, then he, didn't he get caught up uh, behind um, Petrov in the Renault? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that the overtaking model was wrong, maybe both in the Ferrari strategy and in, in, in Fernando's mind, because I, I think that the expectation was that he'd be able to come out, he'd be able to overtake Petrov on you know, much fresher tyres and everything would be OK. It was a very interesting race. And of course, you know, it was actually that race that led to the introduction of, of DRS because you know, many people felt that race was, was spoiled by the inability of Fernando to get past a car that was significantly slower. So I, I think it's unfair to judge him on that one instance where things did go wrong because I I think everyone expected he'd come out of the pits, he'd get past Petrov, he'd, he'd set off on, on the chase because it, it it really was as you say it was weber who was the important one i think um, sebastian was the one who was sneaking up that no one was looking at mm, yeah. but uh, we do get strategies wrong all of us sometimes very publicly particularly uh, when you're going for the win of the race or the championship or whatever and it gets analyzed to hell by by people like you tom <laughs> no puff <laughs> it's one of the things I actually love about Formula One is the fact that every two weeks you are judged before this enormous audience. And you know, if, if you've done it right, you, you, you get a pat on the back. And if you've done it wrong, you're, you're the biggest villain in the world. The reality is that's happening up and down the field, it's not quite so, so public sometimes. And, you know, far more often than not, Fernando got it right.
1: A lot of news outlets are saying, you know, is this going to be a bit like Michael Schumacher coming back to Mercedes? How close do you think Fernando is to his peak now? He's going to be 39 at the start of next season. He's going to turn 40 midway through.
0: Well, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but Michael was 41, I think, when he came back. Mm, he was, yeah. Yeah. Does age matter so much these days? Um the, the the career of a of a Formula One driver is actually very long these days. You know, they they're getting into cars at the age of eighteen and they're getting out of them at the age of uh forty, forty-one. Raikkonen's up there now, isn't he? He's uh, nine and forty or something. You know, it is quite a long career. Now it's easy to look at Michael and say, well, he, he came back when he was forty-one. It didn't work particularly well, you know. There's no doubt he was not as competitive as he had been earlier. But you know, there's more to to it than just the driver for a start. In those days, um, Mercedes, they were struggling with tyres, weren't they? You know, it, it, particularly in races, they they weren't on top of their tyre management the way they are now, and I think that that had quite an effect on Michael. Well, Fernando suffer from age? You know, I suspect not, because I think he's still fit. And that's probably, you know, one thing that does degrade a little bit with, with age, but, you know, not to a level that I think will affect him. But I think more interestingly, he has learned, he's more mature. And I think one big difference between him and Michael is... Fernando's little episode with Toyota, which I believe will have taught him an awful lot. And I think he'll come back very strong. And I I think some of it will come from that.
1: Because as a follow-up, I was actually going to say, what about two years away? How will that affect him? But are you saying that that experience in endurance racing at Le Mans with Toyota will have benefited him?
0: I I believe it will, yeah. I think that, you know, there there are several things about driving a Formula 1 car and being in a Formula 1 team that are important. And, you know, arguably, one of Fernando's weaknesses, certainly in the time when he drove for us at Renault, was that he didn't really understand the, the team part of it. You know, the, the, the fact that everyone was giving of their best, everyone was pushing just as hard as they could. Everyone wanted to win that championship. I think you know, Fernando sometimes felt he was alone. And there was the infamous incident in in Japan in 2005, when he he said, you know, the team's not with me, even though we were
1: just about to win the World Championship. How much did that hurt? Just if we can talk about that.
0: It it hurt a lot. It, It hurt the whole team. It was up to us as the management of the team, particularly myself, sort of looking after the race team at the time to try and Build people's spirits up and to, to sort of say, look, you know, okay, he said it, but it's one of these things that may have been misinterpreted. We didn't hear it directly. He's under a lot of pressure, all this sort of stuff. But to be honest, it hurt a lot um, because, you know, people were putting in all the hours they could, pushing as hard as they could to win that championship. But to get back to the point, I, I, I think that one of the things they probably learned in racing in, in LMP1 is that it really is a team effort, you know, even down to the driving. It's not just down to, to how you drive the car, it's how you and your teammate drive the car. And, you know, to win the mom, to me, it's an incredible achievement. And I, I think it's one of the, the great things about Fernando is that he was very quick and very able to adapt to whatever the situation was. So, you know, Pirelli tyres, a lot to learn when you've been racing on Michelin's. He learnt it. Groove tyres, when they came in, you know, he he learnt how to to use them to the best. And actually, I probably mean, you know, the, the time when we had to race right through a race on one set of tyres. He learnt how to do things like that. So I think that um, it perhaps brings us to the interesting fact of not just 2021, but 2022, when we have a really a very, very new car. And will the wily old Fernando Alonso be one of the first to suss out how best to, to get the performance from that car.
1: And you think the answer will be yes? I, I do
0: think the answer will be yes, yeah.
1: I think you will be, be very
0: quick to, to figure out what matters, what doesn't matter, how to um, work with the engineers to get the best setup from the car, how the 18-inch tyres behave differently to the 13-inch, the um, all these sort of things, yeah.
1: So on the, the the team aspect, do you see Fernando coming back as, I mean, to sort of a lot of footballers, older footballers, we, we talk about player managers, don't we? Do you see Fernando taking more of that kind of a role within Renault, almost working alongside the management?
0: I think he's always played that sort of role. I, even in your day? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Sometimes not not as well as maybe he, he could have done. And, you know, the, the Japan incident I mentioned is an example of it because, you know, as a, as a manager, even when you're down, you've, you've still got to motivate and you've got to, you know, smile when in, inside you're crying. So he, he always has played that role. He's always been very influential within a team. And I think there are those who've worked with him who look at that in a critical way and say, maybe he's had too much influence within a team. I think that after Renault, you know, after the championships in five and 2005-2006, I think his time at Ferrari was, was really quite difficult, not necessarily great for him because, okay, you know, he could have come out of that with just slight change of circumstances with a couple more championships. But at the same time, you know, he had all this pressure of the Ferrari driver pressure and everything. And I think that when he went to McLaren, we saw, again, those sort of outbursts. NASA is seven and a half seconds back. We must save fuel. We must target zero. I don't want, I don't want, already I have big problems now. Driving with even, looking like amateur. They really are a little bit, they're, they're negative to the team, they, they, you know, and they, they, they don't win him friends. But again, they, you know, I'd say that um, I'd say that I hope that he's he's got through that and he's a more mature person. You know, it's it's quite a long while ago that I worked with him and uh, people do change.
1: Just a little bit more about his work ethic. You know, how hardworking is he outside of the car? How often back in the in, in the Renault days was he coming to Endstone and just jollying along the guys? Because I think you have told me in the past, actually, Pat, how Michael Schumacher used to just almost turn up unannounced at the factory just to see you guys. Was Fernando like that as well?
0: No, not in exactly the same way. I, uh, Michael was exceptional in that that respect, you know, because he he really understood the the value of, of the team and and how to get the best from the team. You know, he knew everyone. He knew didn't just know their names. He knew... Uh, A significant amount about them you know what their children were doing and all this sort of stuff fernando didn't react in in that sort of way but that's not to say that he didn't have a high work ethic and at the circuit he worked really hard he's an interesting character because he's very very laid back michael was quite intense when he was working fernando you couldn't really see what was going on and there'd be times in a pre-brief or a debrief where I'd look at him, you know, as we were sort of talking, we were going through things, and I think, is he really paying attention to this? <laughs> and then he would ask the deepest, most searching question you can imagine, and you'd think, wow, you know, he, he's not just paying attention to it, he's really understanding this at a, at a really high level. I, I wouldn't criticise his work ethic at all. I think I did once uh, and I I think Fernando absolutely attacked me for it and I had to admit I was wrong.
1: Would Renault have won those world titles in 2005-2006 without Fernando Alonso?
0: Uh, No, I don't think so. Um, You know, there are are many aspects that go into winning races. Um, You know, you need a good car, And that means, you know, good aerodynamics, good vehicle dynamics, uh, good reliability. You need a good team who understand tactical decisions, strategic decisions. You know, you need a good pit crew. You need a good engine. You you need all these things, but you also need a good driver. And I always say that, you know, there are about seven elements there or something. And if you've got six of those seven elements together you're going to win some races you're going to be quite successful but it's so competitive these days so competitive that you know unless you've got all of them you're not going to win championships so i think the answer is no without fernando i don't think we would have done
1: what was the greatest performance you witnessed from him oh gosh um that's quite difficult
0: i think uh, i think that that first win in hungary in 2003 was was really good because you know very very young guy uh youngest race winner of all time at, at, at that time and such a mature drive you know it would have been so easy to throw that away and lose it so I think that was a great one there were a couple of really intense races at, at Imola one of which we won one of which we
1: lost can you tell us a little bit more about Imola 05, the one that you won?
0: Yeah, <laughs> funnily enough, uh, I don't really remember much about that one. I remember the one we lost and that, that, that's actually quite typical of me. I, I, <laughs> I regard, you know, winning is just what you get paid to do. Losing is something that hurts. And so I, I, I always remember the races that we should have done better in.
1: Pat, can I ask you then, when he had Schumacher sat on his gearbox for the last, what was it, 15 laps? How confident were you on the pit wall that he was going to keep it on the island and not make a mistake?
0: If it had been anyone other than Schumacher behind him, I'd have been totally confident because he was actually really, really good at that. Um, with Michael, you can never be confident, you know. You, you, you've got definitely the two best drivers in the world at the time sitting there, as you say, you know, centimeters apart. But Fernando was actually very clever at defending his technique was to never really drive two laps the same so he, he would just you know he'd apply the throttle a little bit later in one corner a little bit earlier in another corner take a slightly different line and you know there there's some drivers are easy to overtake because they're predictable I've seen it from the pit wall and I, I, I've, I've seen you know even some of my drivers where I think oh I know we're going to lose this because I know what the guy's going to do and the chap who's following him knows what he's going to do as well. With Fernando, you didn't because he he was clever enough to to know that the minute you set a pattern, you could break that pattern. So I was actually reasonably confident we we were going to get that one.
1: There's some more highlights I want to talk to you about in a minute, but can we just take it a little bit further back? And can you just tell me the first time you became aware of Fernando Alonso?
0: Yeah, I think uh, he did a test for us, gosh now when was it? it must have been around 2001 i suppose 2002 he was our test driver wasn't he so yeah and i i had a sort of specific way with with new drivers how i used to do things never never try and put too much pressure on them uh have short runs let them have a break let them have a think about things uh wherever possible i try and get a new driver in a car if they if they had a day's driving i try and get them in in the afternoon of day one and the morning of day two so he could think about things overnight. I never asked them to do long runs or anything. Uh, and with Fernando, it was so obvious so early on that actually he he could do longer runs, he could give good feedback, he could give him work to do rather than just drive a training. I, I remember phoning Flavio Briatore that, that evening and saying there really is there's something special here. It wasn't that we discovered him on that day or anything like that. You know, everyone knew the guy had had talent, but I, I think that um, the reason I phoned Flavio that night was to say, "Look, actually, this is probably a little bit better than we we actually thought."
1: And given his character, how impatient was he when he was that test driver in two thousand and two? And you had, you know, Jensen and was it Jensen and Fisichella, wasn't it, as the race drivers? Was he sort of constantly badgering you, saying, come on, Pat, put me in the car? Was it that kind of environment? Yep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, he was very, very young. And it, it's funny, you, know, you, you tend to forget how young these drivers are and therefore how sort of immature they are in, in in non-racing terms. But there he was. He was always pushing. He was... He was always very critical of the race drivers, both the race drivers, you know, and, and absolutely, probably more at Flavio than myself, but always trying to, to say, look, you know, if I had the chance, I wouldn't have made that mistake. I'd have done better than that. I'd have been quicker than that. You know, I, I, I'd I, do a better job for you. So, um, yeah, he... he, he he knew where he wanted to get to and he wanted to get there fast. There's no doubt about it.
1: And he was true to his word because when he when you gave him the race seat in 2003, he qualified on pole for his second race. In
0: Malaysia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did. Um, now, there's a little bit of strategy in that as well. But yeah, he, he delivered and uh, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing, actually, Tom, because I used to say at one time to the guys, look, Every race is important. There's, there's not one race that's more important than another. Every every race has the same number of points for winning it. You've got to put the same effort into every race. But I found out probably around this sort of time that actually that that's not really true. And I I, I absolutely knew it by sort of two thousand and five. Because those early races are so important because they, they set the whole mood for the team. You know, you Winning is a, a mental state as much as anything, and you know to to go to your second race as a as a rookie and put it on pole, ir- irrespective of the fact that you, we probably had a slightly better and a slightly different uh, strategy that we were following. It just sets that expectation. It gives that confidence, and you know being a winner is is something really special. I, th- I think. Tom, you, you've seen it so many times in, in your career that once a driver wins a race, they seem to be unstoppable. You know, sometimes it can take ages to get to that first win. And then when it happens, that, that, that self-esteem, just drivers, in fact, all competitors have to have in, in bucket loads, it just rises exponentially. Uh, and the wins just keep
1: coming then. How did winning change him?
0: Again, I think confidence now... I'm probably going to contradict myself here because the, the interesting thing is that he always had that confidence. He sort of knew he was going to win. He he felt he was a winner right from the start. Uh, but that's, that's quite unusual. You know, most of them have some levels of self-doubt amongst this sort of huge self-esteem that any competitive person needs to have. With Fernando, yeah, he, he was you know, just like we were saying, he was badgering us to get get in the race car when he was driving a Minardi. You know, he, he just he, he did feel he could do it. There, there was always something to come from Fernando.
1: What about the mind games with his teammates? I hope I'm not being too unfair, but I always felt Fizzy was brilliantly quick, but a bit of a sitting duck for someone like Fernando. Is that unfair?
0: No, I don't think it I don't think it is. Yeah, you know, we, we talked a little a few minutes ago about what you need to to win races and I said, yes, you need a driver. What do you need in that driver? You need a, a high level sort of intelligence, competitiveness and, and, and what have you. And I think, you know, with Fizzy, he was very quick and he drove some good races as well. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not, not putting the guy down. He, he was a damn good driver. But I think that um, if you compare him to Fernando, Fizzy had his way of doing things, you know, this is how I'm going to go about this race, and the pattern was set. Fernando, as I alluded to earlier, was always thinking, always changing, always trying to find a new way of doing things, even during the race. I think that's probably what what made him stand out amongst his teammates. In in themselves, good drivers, without a doubt. But Fernando just had that, that little bit extra.
1: Is this a legacy thing with him? Is that one of the reasons he's coming back?
0: I think there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, it, I, I think it's, it's a shame that a guy with that amount of talent has only won two championships. And if I think that's a shame, Fernando will think it's it's a tragedy. So, yeah, there's definitely unfinished business. And, you know, you can talk about triple crowns and you can talk about wanting to win Indy. And, yeah, he'd like to do all these things. But, you know, I know Fernando well enough to know that there's nothing he wants more than another Formula One World Championship.
1: And that is why he's coming back. He thinks he can achieve that with Renault, maybe in 2022.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Fernando's not a (laughs) journeyman. He hasn't come back because he's bored. He hasn't come back because, you know, he wants to see the world again. He's come back to win.
1: You've worked, Pat, with some of the greatest drivers of the modern era. And I just was wanting to get your thoughts comparing Fernando to, for example, the likes of Ayrton Senna. You work with Senna very early in his career. You work with Fernando very early in Fernando's career. Are there parallels between those two?
0: Yeah, I think, Tom, you, you say I work with them in the modern era, but, you know, <laughs> I've been involved with them one long time. And it, it's interesting that people often ask this question of, you know, can you compare Senna, Schumacher, Alonso? The interesting thing is that I worked with those three in particular, and there are many other champions I worked with, but those three in particular were a decade apart. So, um, you know, Ayrton in the 80s, Michael in the 90s, uh, and Fernando in the 2000s. As an engineer, what you require of your driver changes with time. In In the 80s, we didn't have data acquisition, we didn't have the understanding of the cars, we didn't have the modeling capabilities. We didn't have simulation and we relied on the driver. The driver was all our feedback. I mean, it, it sounds crazy now, but, you know, even down to gear ratios and what revs we were pulling in top gear and what the water temperature was and things like that, all that came from the driver. So a very different requirement to today where you actually know far more about what the car's doing than, than the driver does. Michael's somewhere in the middle. You know, we, we we certainly had a reasonable amount of data acquisition, although it was early days and it wasn't anywhere near the quality it's now. But you know, starting to work the, this sort of very holistic view of the the engineering and the driving all coming together to to achieve performance. In many ways, different requirements, different drivers, and and in my view, different areas. You know. It, a year is a a long, long time in in Formula One. A decade is is forever. But there are human qualities as well, and I've mentioned it a few times self-esteem. I think what I see as the the similarities between, particularly those three drivers and and many others, you know Nelson Piquet, Gerhard Berger, m- many many others. What, what I I see is this enormous self-esteem this this absolute belief that they are the best in the world they are the only people who will get the performance from the car you know they're, they're doing you a favor driving your car and they're going to win with it and they are much much better than the other 19 23 however many people who were on, on the grid at the time and that is something that in those three in particular was so much stronger than i saw in in other drivers and that to me was the similarity between them.
1: What about pace?
0: Relative thing of course and you know the, the performance of the cars has improved massively so two elements to pace as we were talking about a little bit earlier single lap pace and race pace. stand by what I said earlier that there, there are more drivers capable of giving a very high single lap pace you know able to achieve percent of of what the car's capable of over one lap pace over a race different thing much fewer drivers are able to do that now again if we refer to those three my time working with with he really was poor over race pace but it was because he was unfit he, he hadn't realized that you needed to be very fit to drive a Formula One car probably more so in those days than even now because we didn't have power steering we had rudiments of ground effect um, which made steering quite heavy at times there were certainly times when in a fast corner you you turned in you applied a steering angle and then you locked your, your elbows sort of almost into the monocoque because the, the loads were so high you wouldn't be able to correct. So if, if the car didn't do what you expected,
1: you were in trouble. That's fascinating in that you said earlier that Fernando was ready to go when he arrived. He was able to do long distances in that first test, etc. Whereas you're saying really Senna wasn't quite ready to go. That's quite interesting difference between the two of them
0: right there. I wouldn't say that Senna wasn't quite ready to go. I'd say he was nowhere near ready to go. It was actually Michael coming along who realized, and I think this probably came, we were talking about sports cars earlier. Now, a lot of people forget that, that Michael drove for uh, Mercedes in, in sports cars before he came into Formula One. And I had a huge respect for the way Mercedes ran the sports car team. It, it was with Salba, But they had this incredible driver training program where, you know, they they taught them all sorts of things, even the sort of PR aspects, how to conduct themselves in interviews and what have you. But they also taught them physical well-being uh, and physical strength and physical stamina was so important to winning races. And, And Michael took that to new levels. Suddenly, when people saw what Michael was doing, from that point onwards, everyone had to do it. But prior to that, in Ayrton's time, absolutely not. And you know, Ayrton could do a quick lap in those days, but he couldn't do consistent laps. He, he found it very difficult. He, he improved a lot during you know, the, that time he was with, with us at Tolman, but um, it, it was still a, a big difference, I think.
1: Those three are such fantastic drivers. Simmons Grand Prix, you've got a blank checkbook. You can employ two of them. Who would you choose?
0: Wow, putting two of those three in the same team would be fireworks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. I'll give you an answer.
1: It's Michael and Ayrton. So why not, Fernando?
0: I think it comes down to this team thing. You know, I I would love to see that everything I said about what I hope he's learned in Toyota comes to fruition. He's got some great guys at Enstone now to, to work with, some of whom. Uh, you know, like Alan permain, worked with him before, so uh, you know I hope that he really has upped his game in in the sort of team building side of things but um until i 've seen that proven as as you 've given me this very nice blank check, and thank you for that <laughs> um, and I have to spend it today that 's my
1: answer. <laughs> and how good is fernando at developing a car looking at these 2022 regs and things
0: yeah i think i think he's good and and i think that's that's an interesting thing and i, I was amused to see that he's already um starting to direct the team and telling them to forget about 21 and get on with 22 and all this
1: stuff. Do you believe him when he says that? <laughs> yeah, <I> do <laughs> You do believe him. Okay. No,
0: I I think he is I think he is pretty adaptable and uh I think he will get the best from from the 22 car. When when I worked with him, I admired the way he could adapt to things I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the the single set of tires through a race which was a really difficult thing to do. He he understood how to, to use them, when to use them. I think going and doing Le Mans, uh, as I've said before, I think is a fantastic thing to do. I think it really will have helped him. And interestingly, I, I spoke to him last year, the year before, I can't remember. Uh, and I, I spoke to him quite a lot about driving the Le Mans car because As you know, I've been working on the 2022 car and the overtaking capabilities and things. And so I I was talking to a lot of the drivers um, like him, like Hulkenberg, who'd driven the LMP1 cars because I wanted to understand a bit about them. And it it was fascinating to get his insights as to how he had learned to drive the LMP car and what he'd had to do and how he discovered... Particularly with the energy regeneration on that car, how he discovered things that you know the other drivers hadn't discovered. They'd been driving it for a while. He came along and he said, "Oh yeah, well, look, if I do this and if I do that, and if I lift here and brake here, I, I, I've actually got more energy to play with." It, he he's very very good at things like that, and and I think the 2022 car will be will be good for him because it'll be a bit of a reset for everyone, and I think it will help Fernando quite a lot.
1: And the young uns on the grid, it's such a young grid now, really, isn't it? Do you think he'll have any problems uh, adapting to racing with the likes of Max Verstappen, even his teammate, Esteban Ocon?
0: Tom, when you get to our age, they're all young, aren't they? <laughs> that is true. I don't think so. I don't think that would enter his head. It, it, you know, the, the minute he gets in the car, the minute the visor comes down, there are 19 enemies on that grid. Uh, and he doesn't care who they are, what they are. They are the enemy. And they, they're there to be beaten.
1: Brilliant. And so just in conclusion, Pat, you're predicting the same Fernando that we've known all along, but perhaps a little bit more of a team player. Is, is that a fair summary?
0: That, that's what I'm certainly hoping for. Um, predicting, I, I don't like making predictions, you know, but that's what I'm, I'm really hoping for. And, and I really hope that, you know, the guys at Enstone and Very can, Provide him with with what he needs. Uh, I, I think the engines are starting to equalise a little bit. Um, there's still a little way to go. I hope that the the investment is there. You know, Renault, like all of the manufacturers, are are really hurting. You know, their, their share price has dropped from sort of high 50s to low 20s uh, euros per share over the the last year. Their sales are down sort of month on month look at may they're down by 50 percent all the the auto manufacturers are hurting but they need to make the most of this opportunity they, they need to put the investment in to give fernando what he needs to win and and i really hope that they will do that
1: well it would be fantastic wouldn't it fernando alonso back on the top step pat thank you so much for your time what a wonderful chat it's a pleasure I don't know about you, but I learned so much from Pat in that conversation. How Alonso is deliberately inconsistent during a wheel-to-wheel battle in order to make it more difficult to pass him, that's gold dust. And how sports car racing will have helped him to appreciate the team aspect of racing more. That makes complete sense too. And what did you guys make of his Simmons Grand Prix driver lineup? Were you surprised that Fernando wasn't included? I think I was. Then again, I wasn't. Because we're talking about Senna and Schumacher here. If ever there was a reason to introduce three car teams in Formula One, that right there would surely be it. Pat, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. Well, that's almost it for this week. But as ever, let me have a quick dive into the virtual mailbag before we go. Many of you have got in touch to say how much you enjoyed hearing from the FIA race director Michael Massey last week. And didn't he have another busy weekend in Austria, by the way? Anton Marquez said this, "'Loved the chat with Michael Massey on Beyond the Grid. "'Great to see another Aussie involved in the sport "'and the perfect thing to listen to "'lying on the kids' bedroom floor "'trying to get them back to sleep.'" Anton, I'll take that as a compliment, although you might also be saying that Beyond the Grid is sleep-inducing. Also, Stephen Lang got in touch to say this, "'It was fascinating to hear Michael Massey's story "'and to better understand the FIA perspective of events.'" as I am a scrutineer. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, it's our pleasure, Stephen. Michael's story is an inspiring one on many levels. And if you've taken something out of it on a professional level, well, that's great too. And Keirdra says this, I went to that first Korean Grand Prix in 2010, and yes, it was very different. Before Michael's podcast, I wasn't really aware of what the insiders thought about it, and I had no idea it was so close to not happening. And after the race, by the way, we were stuck in the car park as shuttle buses didn't exist. I'm sorry to hear that you were stuck in the car park afterwards, Kidra. although I don't think we can blame Michael for that. The Korean Grand Prix was just another amazing story in the back catalogue of Michael's life. Well, that's it for this week, folks. I'm sorry if I didn't read your message out, but please keep getting in touch because I read each and every one of your messages. If you do want to drop me a line, I'm at f one on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week. We've got another cracker of a guest. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.